to open to our scripture passage today. We're continuing on in the book of Luke, and we're looking at Luke chapter 6, 27 to 36. Luke 6, 27 to 36. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is John, one of the pastors here, and uh, glad to be worshiping with you on this uh, Sunday morning. Let's uh, read our passage, Luke 6, uh, starting at verse um, 27. Luke 6, 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, Do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask as we come to this passage uh, that is actually incredibly challenging and uh, cuts against everything we want and how all of our culture operates. We pray, Lord, that you would use these words to break through our hearts and to show us the love of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit to rebuild us so that we would look and live more like you are calling us to be as your people who would be vastly different from everybody else. And Lord, it is impossible for us to do this. We can't on our own. We pray that your Spirit would rewire our hearts, bathe us in that deep, deep love of Jesus, so we could actually change our lives. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, maybe by a show of hands, who here has ever had a difficult neighbor? All right. There we go. So yeah, more and more. Probably every one of us at some point have. And it is just no fun to live next to a neighbor who is cranky, or you're not sure the next thing he's going to blow up about, or you know, yell at the kids when they get too close to his lawn. It, it, it can make you unwelcome or feel unwelcome even in your own yard. Uh, a number of years back, when we lived outside of uh, Philly, we rented the upper floors of this old twin home. And these homes were built before garages were a thing. And so everybody, for the most part, parked on the street. And sometimes all the street parking in front of our home was taken. And so I would just park down a little further in front of our neighbor's house. And apparently our neighbor did not like this because one day I walked out to a letter taped to my windshield uh, about how I am not allowed to park there. And we're in an illegal rental and he'll contact the police if I park in front of his house again. Now, our landlord was a a widow raising two young kids, and 
I didn't want to bother her, and so I decided to call the police and see if I was breaking any laws by parking on the street in front of our neighbor's house. And they said, no, street parking is public, but you know, it's good to be a good neighbor. Uh, now, I don't particularly like conflict, but I also don't want to be bullied uh, by a guy who's reserving a spot that's not necessarily his. So I wasn't going to just stop parking there, but I wasn't going to you know, purposely try to provoke him. But a couple weeks later, I was getting home late at night and all the parking was filled except for in front of his house. I think all the other neighbors learned not to park there. I said, well, I'm not going to drive all the way down here. I'm going to park here and we'll see what happens. Well, uh, I think the next day I get a knock on the door from the landlord of the twin home that shared a wall with ours. And that man had taken a bunch of pictures of my car and sent it to this landlord and had threatened him with his tenants, thinking that we lived in one of his units. It's easy to talk about loving your neighbor in theory or the neighbors you like. It's a whole lot harder to love your neighbor when he's taking pictures of your car and threatening to report you to the police. Our passage contains probably one of the best known words or phrases of Jesus. Do to others as you would have them do unto you, sometimes called the golden rule. And this idea is tied to loving your neighbor, something that Jesus talks about in other places in the Gospels. Now, when we think of loving our neighbor, what you probably think of is, oh, I'm going to, around Christmas time, go to all my neighbors and give them some cards and cookies. Maybe I'll bring a new family that moved in a meal to welcome them. Perhaps I'll shovel my neighbor's sidewalk. And these are ways we can love our neighbor. But when you look in the context of what Jesus means when he says, love your neighbor, he has something way more difficult in mind. Loving your neighbor means loving your jerk neighbor. It means bringing him the Christmas card and the cookies and not doing it just to have a little sense of self-righteousness. Well, we're going to be the better people here and I'm going to give him cookies whether he likes it or not. But you do it because you actually care for this person who causes your blood pressure to go up every time you see him. Jesus calls us to love that person. You want to be a loving person, you've got to learn to love in a way that costs you. True love hurts. And the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, what does love cost you? What does love cost you? And we're going to look at this in three ways. First, the principle of love, and then the foundation of love, and then the application of love. So first, the principle of love. Last week, we started this longer speech, or we could even say sermon of Jesus, where Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then he starts to lay out this really radical vision of what God's kingdom will look like, contrary to every other kingdom in the world. In verse 27, where we're picking up this week, marks this transition in the speech where Jesus seemed to be primarily first talking to his closest disciples, but now he kind of looks out amongst the crowd and starts speaking to anyone who can hear. And remember, this large crowd from all around the region, hundreds of people probably have come, maybe thousands have come to see and to hear Jesus. And he had just healed many of them. And that's a good way to get people's attention, isn't it? This is Jesus' first public speech in the book of Luke. In some ways, we could see this as Luke is presenting this like Jesus presidential announcement, his first campaign speech. Here's my platform for what this kingdom that I have come to set up looks like. 
Now, as all of you, I'm sure, are well aware, we're you know, getting back into another election season, presidential election cycle. Who's excited for that? Uh, and everybody right, are making their official announcements that I am running for president. Right? And what do they say? Well, here's just some excerpts from some recent campaign announcements. When I'm president, the drug cartels using the Chinese labs and Mexican factories to kill Americans will cease to exist. I will freeze their assets, I will build the wall, and I will allow the world's greatest military to fight these terrorists. My mission, another one, will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening to impose a new type of corporate feudalism in our country. Or, as president, I pledge to be an energetic executive who will take these important issues head on and deliver results. And then there's Jesus' speech. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Uh, Jesus, you're going to need to change your stump speech. That doesn't pull very well amongst people. You know, 63 of Americans identify as Christian. I doubt 63% of people would vote for Jesus if he ran on that platform. I doubt Jesus would even make it out of the primaries. You know, many folks in our country say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Many of us say that, and yet if you look at the kingdoms that we are voting for, longing for, look completely different than the one that Jesus has come to build. Now some people might be tempted to say, well, you know, Jesus, try living in America in 2023, right? That might have worked back then, but it won't work now. Now we've got to get our hands dirty and fight back. I mean, his message is so radical to us. I struggle a lot with this sermon, rewriting chunks of it. Is, is how do I preach on the power of what Jesus is saying without myself feeling like a, a complete hypocrite of telling, oh yeah, you guys need to do this. Well, I know my own heart is so different than what Jesus is saying. How far I fall short. Just look at verses 32 to 34. Right? You can think, oh yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm good at loving people, right? But then Jesus says, okay, you think you're good at loving? If you love those who love you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those who you expect to get repaid, notice Jesus doesn't even say repaid with interest. Just get that $100 you lent back. What credit is that? Even sinners will lend to people they'll get their money back from. Jesus is saying, you want to see how loving you are. Don't look at how you treat the people you like, that it's easy to love. Look at how you treat the people who don't like you. You can shovel a thousand neighbor sidewalks. You can make hundreds of meals for folks. Those aren't bad things. That is a form of love. But if your love is never reaching out to those people who would be considered your enemies, who have cursed you, who have mistreated you, you've never graduated past Love 101. Because true love hurts, it has a cost. And this is why Jesus' kingdom is completely different from any political party or club or group today. Because any group you join will love the people that love them, who think the way that they think, 
right, who all can point the fingers at the same people and say, yeah, they're the problem right now, and who all cheer when they see those people they don't like stumble and fall and make a fool of themselves. It's not hard to be loved. Right? You can jump on with a politically liberal agenda and liberals will love you. You can jump on with a politically conservative agenda and conservatives will love you. But as soon as you start to question, as soon as you start to wonder, as soon as you say, maybe have we gone too far? Have we lost love? Maybe the other points, people have some good points in what they're saying. You're not rewarded for love. You're kicked out as a compromiser. And the sad thing is, it is so easy for Christians to do this with one another, with others who we don't agree with. And it should be a warning to us. Have you actually known Jesus' love? If you spend so much of your time getting frustrated and murmuring against all the people that have angered you this last week. Jesus is saying, my kingdom will not just be defined by how we love each other. That's important. That's part of it. But it's also going to be defined by how we love our enemies. And one of the reasons that this is so hard for us to do is because if we're honest, so much of our love is actually a self-pleasing, self-centered love. What I mean is we love others because it makes us feel good. You get something out of it, right? You, you love people because, oh, I see, feel so validated by this person. I feel like I'm a good person. It feels good to be needed by this person and for them to tell me how big of a difference I've made or how much this thing has helped. Look how it helped make their day better, and I love feeling that way. So much of our love is directed to people where we feel like we get something back out of it. We get a payoff for loving them. And there's hints of love, there's threads of love, but that is not pure love. It is not loving people for people's sake, for their sake. Because that type of love means you love them even when you get nothing out of it. And it costs you, and it hurts. More than that, it's actually making your life worse. It feels like it's killing you to keep loving this person. And it's like Jesus is saying, in those moments, that is what pure love is. Love is costly. And you only need to live so long before you discover that love hurts in a relationship, in family. You open yourself up to someone who only uses your weaknesses to their advantage, uses your kindness for their profit, who takes these very vulnerable things that you gave to them and uses it to just hurt you all the more. And sometimes you give so much of your life to someone only to see them walk away and not seem to care at all for all that you've done. And that love hurts. And sometimes it hurts so much that you spend the rest of your life trying to insulate and build up walls to protect yourself from never having to be hurt like that again. You build barriers. So there's no way I can go through that again. But again, Jesus says, actually, in those moments, you've gotten the closest to knowing what God's love is like. True love hurts. 
And what does love cost you? And this brings us to our second point, the foundation of love. Because you see what Jesus is calling us to. He's not being hypocritical. He's not calling you to something that he has not known himself. What does love cost Jesus? It's the reason why he came down to this earth. It's the reason why he suffered and died on a cross. It was all because of love. And what did that cost him? Well, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 are some of the most vivid pictures of what Jesus' experience was in his suffering. Let me just read a few quotes from it. His, Jesus' face, was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. What does love cost Jesus? He didn't deserve any of these things. He did it because of his love. It cost him his dignity, his reputation. Everyone thought he was a failure. They mocked him as he was stripped naked. It cost him his life. One commentator wrote, Crucifixion was intended to have the express purpose of the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. What's that person saying? Crucifixion just wasn't being killed. It was so humiliating the person that they no longer looked human. You stripped their humanity from them. And who did Jesus do this for? Did he do it for all the people that he saw? Look how hard they're trying. I'm going to go do something for them. No, Scripture tells us he did it for his enemies. He didn't do it for those people who are trying to live a righteous life. He didn't do it for those people trying really hard to be good. He did it for the very people that cheered when he died. He did it for the very people who mocked him as he was suffering. This is what the end of the, our passage is getting at, if we jump down to the end. The Most High is kind and ungrateful to the wicked. It is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Jesus is not giving us these commands just saying, you know, sentimental language or saying, oh, don't you know God loves you? And you hear those words and, and they sound so hollow and you don't believe that God loves you because, well, I struggle to love myself, so why in the world would God love me? But Jesus' declaration of love for his enemies isn't just kind of pie-in-the-sky promises, but was something that was written in the blood that dripped from his veins. Jesus says, love your enemies, knowing exactly how much that's going to hurt him. Back to Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. 
All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That's what true love looks like. Dying for your enemies. That is the love of God for sinners like you and me, and even those people that you love to hate. See, I think so often when we think of God's love, we think of, oh, it's kind of like my love, but it's just bigger. But the problem with that is you never really can believe that God loves you because you know how fickle your love is. You know how much your love is based on how much you like the other person. And so you constantly go through life hearing, oh yeah, God loves you, but in your heart you say, but God's actually probably disappointed in me, and so there's no way he would love me. But, but friends, see, God's love is completely different from your love. It does not hinge on how hard you're trying. It isn't based on how good you're doing, what grades you get. It's a love that is based in this reality. I will love my enemies. And that included every single one of us at one point. I'll do good to those who hate me. I'll bless those who curse me. I'll pray for those who mistreat me. Let that love sink deep into your heart. Let that love shatter your current idea of what love is and remake it into something that is so much bigger. Let that love redefine your understanding of love so that you might actually begin to believe in your heart, I guess God really could love me. Fleming Rutledge wrote, sentimental, overly spiritualized love. Right? That's what all love in our society is. That's the love we default to. Sentimental, spiritualized love, right? Kind of, oh, it feels good. I get something out of it. But then she goes on to say, this type of love is not capable of the unconditional love of Christ shown on the cross. Only from the perspective of the crucifixion can the true nature of Christian love be seen over against everything that the world calls love. And it's only when you're rooted in that kind of costly love that Jesus has shown that you'll be able to love like he did, to love even your enemies. And this brings us then to the third point, the application of love. And you probably have a hundred questions running through your mind. Right? What about this? Does this just mean I never stick up for myself? What about an abusive relationship? What if I see someone else continually to hurt someone else, so I just let it go? And I can't address all these things in this sermon, and there's even part of me that is hesitant to lessen the weight of what Jesus is saying, but because I think by and large most of us need to move more towards that kind of love. But let's also make sure we understand Jesus correctly. So Jesus gives us two illustrations of what this love looks like. First, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other as well. Now, a slap is different than a punch. <laughs> a slap is meant to insult you, to humiliate you. Most commentators note that in the Jewish culture, a slap was a way to very much to insult someone deeply. And so it seems like what Jesus is saying here is when you're insulted by someone, 
Don't be the next thing you do. Figure out how to insult them back. Don't figure out how to get them back. Don't try to get even. Don't start a Twitter war with them. Don't spread rumors about how bad they are. But instead, receive the insult and be okay with having another one come at you. Again, remember Jesus. When he was suffering on the cross, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. Don't spend so much time, whether in front of others or in your mind, justifying yourself, defending yourself. Recognize Jesus will take care of everything in the end. That's the other half of how you can live this way. Who wants to live in a world where bad people get away with doing bad stuff forever and all we do is say, well, let's love them? The way that we can love them is because we also are resting in the judgment of God. That will make all things right. One of the reasons why our culture has gotten so judgmental is because we cease resting in the judgment of God. And so, of course, you've got to take it into your own hands. It's not good to let people just get away with evil. But God is a just judge. He sees everything. He sees what is done in secret, and he will make all things right. Well, the second thing that Jesus shows us is if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. This is probably talking about someone stealing from you, and I mean, it's almost comical what Jesus is saying, right? Someone grabs your coat, and you say, oh, wait a second, here, let me unbutton my shirt so you can have that too. Uh, You need it. Now, it's important to balance this statement with verse 31. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think this kind of, that phrase keeps us from some maybe the, the silly uh, extremes of, of what we think Jesus might be saying. It, it's not like Jesus is saying, well, if you rob others, do it like you would like to be robbed. <laughs> Say please and thank you at least. No, he's, he's using these big statements to push us towards far more generosity and love than we're comfortable with. He continues, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And with that word, everyone, I think he's, he's challenging us to be less like a loan officer. Right? So if you've ever gotten a mortgage, you know what that's like. You know, let me see every single one of your bank statements for the last six months, and then I'm going to have a bunch of questions about everything on there with any expenditures or you know, income that over $1,000, and then I'm going to ask for pay stubs, and, and only then may we decide to give you a loan. Jesus is saying, everyone, don't lend just to qualified applicants. He's saying for us as Christians, if someone has a need, your default posture should be to help them. You're not a bank. You're not in the business of making money off lending to others. Even getting your money back is not your goal. Help people for their sake, even if it comes at a cost to you. At minimum, and again, this is so challenging for me because I'm not wired this way. We should be more involved in helping those around us who have needs. And then we're all, as we're going through this, thinking about, but what about (laughs) this situation you're wrestling with? And, you know, many 
myself or any of the pastors or elders would be happy to sit down with you and kind of help work through and think through and pray through what, what does it look like to love in this particularly difficult situation. But, but let me just say that Jesus' teaching here doesn't negate the importance of seeking justice. He's not saying that if you're a good Christian, you just let everybody run all over you all the time. But the problem is, so often in our pursuit of justice, it's easy to become bitter. Whether that's pursuing justice on a grand scale, or pursuing justice just in that person who really wronged you maybe a long time ago, and your heart is bitter towards them. And that is the problem with so many of our world's justice movements, is that they are fueled by bitterness, not love. It's the way that Christians, we should be best positioned to pursue justice and do it with love because we know that God will judge everything. And that takes some of it out of our hands. God will make all things right. He's not going to let a single thing go, whether for you or for others. And notice that in all of these circumstances Jesus is giving, he's speaking of something that is happening to you personally, not watching it happen to someone else. This is a call that he's making that you personally need to, 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 to uh, a place where you need to personally decide, I need to love like this. It's not some place where you point the finger and say, you guys need to love like this. Part of loving your neighbor is stepping in to help them, even defend them if needed. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is, where Jesus illustrates the point of what does it mean to love your neighbor? And it's the person who cares for and abandoned and bandages this man's wounds who's been beat up on the side and carries him back into town. That man showed love for his neighbor. It's appropriate for us to take steps to defend and to care for people, particularly those people who cannot care for themselves or defend themselves. And also, it's important, part of love doesn't just mean you give other people a blank slate to just continue in sin. And if, if your spouse has a drinking problem, and they ask you for a bottle of wine, and you know, in the past you would have said no, but you hear, hear this sermon, it says give to anyone who asks, and you say, well, I know what Jesus said, so I guess I'm not just going to give you a bottle of wine, I'll even give you the keys to the liquor cabinet. <laughs> That's not loving. That's not what Jesus is saying. Or if a parent or a spouse has a habit of saying really hurtful things to you, even maybe is verbally abusive, you think, oh, well, Jesus just says, turn the other cheek. I guess, what, do I just live this way forever? No, we've got to understand this in light of the rest of Scripture. Ephesians 4.15 talks about our role as we also as Christians are called to speak the truth in love to each other for our growth in godliness. And what that means is there are times in relationships where you should speak the truth to the other person, but you don't speak it in bitterness. You don't speak it in trying to get even. You don't speak it to make yourself feel better. You speak it because you love that other person and tell them what you're doing is not right. You can't keep doing this. You, uh, you need to set boundaries. I need to set boundaries. Turning the other cheek may mean something like telling that person, I'm hanging up right now if you talk like this. I'm leaving. It's not appropriate for you to do this. 
but then you still call that person the next week to check in because that's what love demands instead of just writing them out of your life. I think that's an example of turning the other cheek. You set boundaries, but you don't let bitterness overcome. And there yet can still be even more extreme circumstances where you need greater boundaries and perhaps even need to sever certain relationships. I mean, that's why God permits, though never requires, divorce in certain circumstances. Because he knows love hurts. And while God will never let go of us, he knows you're human. And there are certain transgressions in a marriage that can hurt so much that God says, it's okay for you to leave in this situation. But even when you do that, if you do that, love, not bitterness, needs to be your motive. So how do you do this? Man, this is hard, right? How do you love a spouse who hasn't shown love to you in decades? Will you stop basing your love off what they've done or haven't done for you, but you start to realize all the ways that God loved you when you ignored him, maybe for decades. And you say, if God loved me when I was his enemy, I can love this person. How do you love a parent who doesn't hesitate to tell you the ways that you've let them down? You learn to love them not based on how they make you feel, but based on realizing how much God has loved you all the way, even when you were letting him down. How do you love a neighbor who just yelled at you for parking in front of their house? That's different. <laughs> no, it's you ask the same thing, right? God, give me wisdom for how to show mercy to this person like you've shown mercy to me for all the times that I've yelled at you. And this is a really hard place to live. Every bone in your body fights against this. It's why it requires a spiritual transformation of our hearts. But when you live in this place, and maybe you've been there sometimes, when you live in that place, you will reach the limits of your love and you will, out of desperation, finally learn to bathe in that deep, deep love of Jesus instead of trying to do it on your own. And I suspect that if you can learn to live in that love more than what you get from this other person, it will transform your life and open you up to untold riches of grace and even let you find joy in suffering and help you to understand what Jesus meant when he said, whoever loses their life for me will find it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us in this uh, impossible task. Uh, Lord, it is so impossible. We struggle with this. Some of us have bitterness that has been with us for decades because of how we've been hurt. Some of us have dealt with something just this last week or in the recent past and we are reliving that situation in our mind and, and we're stuck in that cycle. Father, break our hearts to see how much we have wronged you. 
that even when we're, we're in the middle of trying to justify ourselves and have forgotten about you or are angry at you, your love for us has not stopped. And with that unbreakable love, transform our lives so that we could live in a way we could never do on our own. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.